Hello. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Hello. So, um, uh, my apologies for the delay. We had some technical problems. Um, I am delighted to be kicking off uh, uh, the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute lecture series for the spring with a talk by Professor Stefan Alexander, Professor of Physics at Brown University. Please stay tuned for the upcoming public talks that will be focusing on politics, physics, and scientific research, among others. We are also hoping to have a live session during Ramadan. We will keep you posted. I want to take this opportunity to thank Nahid Ahmad, Assistant Director of Public Programming at the Institute, for organizing and managing the Institute's public lecture series. I am delighted Provost Petters is with us this evening. He will be introducing our speaker for tonight. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Provost Petters, uh, he joined NYU AD as, as, uh, as Provost in September 2020. Prior to that, he was a Benjamin Powell Distinguished Professor of Mathematics at Duke University. And he was former Dean of Academic Affairs for Trinity College of Arts and Sciences, and also Associate Vice Provost for Undergraduate Education at Duke. Arlie Petters' principal research interests include mathematical physics and scientific methods in business administration, with a focus on mathematical finance and entrepreneurship and innovation in the STEM fields in developing uh, nations. Uh, Provost uh, Arlie, the virtual floor is yours. Well, thank you, Nadia. And I know you have been here for just over a month, so I extend to you the warmest of welcome. Uh, I tell you today, it's quite a delight uh, to be part of the first uh, of, in our series and even more delighted and have such a great privilege for introducing Professor Stefan Alexander, who is a leading scholar in the field of theoretical physics, a brilliant thinker and a dear friend of mine. His talk tonight will introduce his latest book titled Fear of a Black Universe. He will take us through an extraordinary journey through some of the physics' greatest mysteries and lead us on an exploration of principles that shape all theories of the universe. And he's also going to combine music and cosmology that we call a cosmic jazz. But if I know Stefan, I can wager his talk and his book that there will be quite a lot of thoughtful, provocative ideas for you in the audience to think about. I also would like to say Stefan is not afraid to take risks and he does not cower from the opportunity to make bold statements. From the opening chapter of his book, without giving any spoilers away, he says the time has come, and I quote, for a new Newton, to reunite the physics of the extraterrestrial with the physics of the terrestrial. Thought-provoking and brave, Fear for Black Universe provides a unique insight into the world of physics and asks earnest questions 
that inspire us. Professor Alexander's ethos of learning, penchant for exploration, and drive for curiosity are all pillars we believe in at NYU Abu Dhabi. And we are so proud to host him tonight. But beyond that, Stefan has been a stalwart force in the world of academia in calling on scholars to dispel structures that have limited racial diversity in our field. As a black physicist, Stefan makes a powerful case for diversifying our scientific communities. A professor of physics, Brown University, Stefan is also the president of the National Society of Black Physicists and executive director of Harlem Gallery of Science. He's deeply passionate about education, promoting opportunities in STEM, and championing access to academic excellence. His latest book is yet another thrilling encounter with a scholar whose previous work, which was titled The Jazz of Physics, The Secret Link Between Music and the Structure of Universe, took us all in a deep dive into the connection between music and physics. And now he's done it again by bringing us a tour de force in what it means to think beyond the boundaries of sometimes rigid academic universes. Let me again welcome everyone to this talk and express my excitement in being here with you today to join one of physics' most original thinkers and someone I'm profoundly grateful to call my friend, Professor Stefan Alexander. Thank you, Provost Petters. Um, what can I say? Um, I am um, <laughs> dumbfounded. Um, you know, every now and then I like to take opportunity to um, actually embarrass powerful people. Um, and let me say that, you know, some of the things that I talk about in my book, um, Provost Petters actually lives that. I, I mean, and I really mean that because I met him. I think it was something like 25 years ago when I was an undergraduate. Um, I was at a conference and there were a bunch of fancy physicists, like, you know, um, of an older generation. And I remember walking around, not feeling like I belonged. And there was, there was a the high table with all the, all the big shot physicists. And this one of the members of that group said, young man, come join us, come sit with us. And it, that was actually, that turned out to be Professor Petters. Um, and that was many years ago. And another quality that I talk about in my book is the importance to, to not be afraid of others or not to actually embrace um, others that actually are bringing something new to the table. And he has always functioned that way um, throughout all the years that I've known him. So I guess what I, I'm really trying to say here is that I'll admit I'm a bit jealous. I wish he was my provost. Um, so you guys um, at Abu Dhabi and at the Institute, it's a great pleasure to be a part of um, this NYU Abu Dhabi Institute, the first talk. Um, and thanks for having me. I want to thank the staff um, and everyone involved in making this a possibility. And I want to thank um, the audience um, for attending. So without further ado, let's begin. I'm now going to share a screen and um, pull up, hopefully, the correct talk. Um, so just bear with me for one second while I pull this up. Um, 
Hold on a second. Why is it doing this? Okay. It should come on right now. And I just want to get confirmation from that that you're seeing the full screen here. Yes, yes so, we are. Yes, okay, we are. Very good. Um, I'm just um, very good. So now let me play it again. All right. So this title of my talk, and uh, much of what I'm going to talk about today is based on this book that I recently wrote called Fear of a Black Universe. Um, and let's just begin. Well, you know, the story kind of really begins that um, during my graduate school years, um, when I was pursuing my PhD and oftentimes and all throughout my career. Um, actually, I actually realized that, um, that Provost Pettis used to do a similar thing. He used to go back to his homeland of Belize. Um, and I would go back to Trinidad, which is where I was born and moved to New York City when I was um, a youngster. But there was a special place in the northern coast of Trinidad called Las Cuevas Bay. And there's a chapter, the first chapter is called in the book, Escape from the Jungle of No Imagination. But really what it was about was every, every um, so often when I would get stuck on something, a problem, even of a personal type or in my physics or in my career, I would go and trek up this hill and just sit and watch, the, you know, just watch this, this, this bay. Um, seven miles away, you can actually, on a, on a clear day, you can see um, South America, because Trinidad is seven miles away from the Orinoco Basin, the mouth of the Amazon. And, I, and, and, you know, I would just wait for something from some new insight to come. And there was one particular time I remember I was, um, it was when my grandmother had passed away and I was very close to her. Um, and I had to reflect on my own life. What am I doing? What am I doing in my life? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I pursuing the path of being a science physicist when it's so challenging, um, it's difficult to make headways in the research. And then I'm receiving, you know, I'm a bit different. I'm a bit different in the way I think, the way I talk, the way I look, the way I walk, all these things. Why am I doing this? And I then had an epiphany. Um, um, and, the, I, and the epiphany was, you know, go hard or go home. We have a saying, go hard or go home. But, but precisely what it meant was that I realized that maybe I was going about it the wrong way, that instead of just trying to get by, if I'm going to do physics, I'm going to do it. I'm going to pursue the questions that got me into physics to begin with. You know, what, you know, why do we exist? Where does this world come from? You know, why, you know, um, you know, what is consciousness? How does that relate to the laws of physics? What is, you know, um, how does from non-living matter, living matter emerge? And what does physics as a physicist have to do with this? You know, I, I realized that I, I got attracted to physics because of the magical ideas of magic in the obvious. The magic in, you know, you look at the laws of quantum physics, and we'll talk a little bit about it to, um, today, today. But like, I was interested in the magic. And I wanted to create some of that magic myself. And not simply doing rote calculations on a blackboard or solving problem sets, right? And what I discovered was that after doing my own research was actually some of the founders of the field, like Albert Einstein and Schrodinger and, you know, um, to name a few, 
were also risk takers. They didn't, so Einstein, you know, wasn't a slave to the mathematics, for example. Mathematics was a very important tool, but the way he accessed his physics was through the idea of, a, of, of trying to devise principles first, trying to get some grand idea that underlies what appears to be, you know, you know um, phenomena that may even be disparate. But he would find some unifying idea, right? And this idea would be encoded in something he called a principle. And there's a quote from him when he was asked, how did you come up with your theory of relativity? And he said, the theorist method involves his using as his foundation general principles from which he can deduce conclusions. So today, what we're going to do is I decided to approach my physics in the spirit and in the tradition of Albert Einstein and, and the other founders of the field, who also, again, were trying to look more at the general principles and then, of course, refine them, of course, with mathematics and theory. They were both necessary. So the other um, thing I want to kind of talk about now that kind of gives an overarch in attitude, and this is when we talk about the title of my book, some of you may ask, why the title Black Universe? What do you mean by the word black? Well, I mean, you know, it can mean a lot of different things, but one of the things that I want to kind of kind of couch this present, this talking, is a notion of blackness as a state of deviance, of a state of stigma. Now, oftentimes, um, when we think about what the word blackness may mean in certain cultures or in, in language, you know, it can mean that which is, in, which is you know, dark or invisible, unseen, misunderstood, um, they're all mysterious, right? Um, maybe there's a notion of fear. People fear the dark. So when we think about all that stuff, it's, if, if we now think about groups of individuals or individuals, that you can now think about stigma, about having a dark thought, a thought that may get you an idea that can get you kicked out of the club, right? And now the question is, how do you, how do you navigate the stigma? And so when I talk about blackness, I'm actually talking about in the context of physics, in the context of pushing the needle, like, you know, taking physics to the next level. Sometimes one has to engage in some what I call positive deviance. Sometimes an idea might get you, might have other people thinking, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. This physicist does not understand physics even to, to even claim what, it, what they're claiming. Now, this notion of deviance sometimes has a negative connotation in sociology, for example. The notion of deviance is that you might have a social group with, with the notion of, um, of social norms that the group agrees on. And if you step outside of those norms, you are now a deviance, and then there, you'll be subject to being shunned or punishment. And so, for example, breaking some laws is a form of deviance. Now, the kind of deviance I'm talking about is actually what I call positive deviance or active deviance. It's a deviance that actually, yes, does may appear to break the rules or or um, violate norms, in this case, the, the norms of the accepted physical theories at the time, of, or, or laws, or even mathematical techniques. But it's necessary to do that, right, 
to, to step outside and, and, and break those norms because when, you know, it provides an opportunity with good debate and with inclusive debate, right, to basically push the theory, the boundaries of, that, of those norms into new theoretical ter- terrain, new breakthroughs, hopefully, okay? So um, that's what I'm saying here is nothing too, um, you know, I think Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher, um, said a similar things when he talked about paradigm shifts. But what I'm kind of doing here is to kind of bring this into the context of when we think about the issues of diversity, when we think about having people from other groups, from different cultural groups um, who are now engaging in the scientific enterprise, what they sometimes might bring with them is a different way of looking at things. And what I'm saying is that um, that that is not an opposition. So sometimes, you know, when we hear this kind of when we talk about diversity, Sometimes some people misconstrue that, but sometimes we are, um, we have to, um, what's the word, you know, um, the cat has got my tongue here, but the point is that there's some kind of compromise. I have to compromise what we know and what is already accepted to bring others in and bring other thinking. What I'm saying is that you need both. We should, you know, there should be a striving to also excel and, and master the given techniques and norms as well as embrace new thinking. Um, it, it takes both to engage in new sort of in new science and new physics. And um, so my book was really about not learning physics because there are lots of books out there that's going to teach you physics. But this book is really about, you know, a manifesto of how to do physics. Okay, so now let's um, get into some, you know, some details. So again, the key method that Albert Einstein engaged in, um, in terms of dividing, trying to figure out a new principle, was the idea of the thought experiment, or what you call a Gedanken experiment. And today I'm going to put some primacy to three principles. So in the book, what I did was I said, okay, what are the, if, if, I were to, if I were to claim that there are three principles that can underlie all of modern physics, or most of modern physics, let me not to be, be too ambitious here, what would those be? And, what do, and, and the idea is, if I were to kind of combine these three principles, maybe I can generate some, and say new things, new bold things or not, about, um, about physics today. And I'm going to list these principles and talk a little bit about all three of them. And um, the first principle I'm going to talk about is invariance. And this principle, so what I'm doing here is that all these principles actually have been um, stated in the past, okay? But what I'm doing is I'm saying, uh, what I'm claiming here is these three principles are to be placed as fundamental when we think about the operation of our physical universe. So let's begin. The first is, oh, and one last thing. Obviously, I am a musician, and one of the things that we do in music, of course, is that we, we take rhythm and harmony and melody, and it's when they get combined, we get something that starts looking like music. So I want us to think of invariant superposition and emergence, for example, as these different components, and, and I'm going to compose the ideas, I'm going to combine them, of course, to compose new physics. So that's kind of where the improvisation is going to happen. 
And of course, the fourth principle, I said a little bit, positive deviance is what I call the principle of blackness. So the first principle I want to talk about is the principle of invariance. And basically, if, you, if a friend asks you, this word is such a big, fancy word, what, what, is the, what is the heart of the matter here? What is invariance? You can say the invariance principle, as my good friend Casey Cole, the writer, said, it's a change that doesn't make a difference. So, you know, when we sometimes we think about what, what change in something is, means that you literally change usually means difference. It means that if I change my orientation, I change my position, if I change my hairstyle, right, it looks different. <laughs> but at the heart of invariance, it's the idea that if I basically have a physical system, for example, and I rotate it, there are certain aspects of that system that will remain unchanged. And the question is, what are those things? All right. And it turns out what those things are, these things are, for example, quantities that are what we call conserved. So, for example, you want to wonder why when the Earth is spinning around its axis, why it will just continue spinning is because of a rotational symmetry having to do with basically the fact that the Earth is nearly almost you know, spherically and rotationally symmetric. And therefore, if it's set in motion in a rotation, that angle of momentum, its rotational motion will be conserved, will, will not change in time. It will continue spinning about its axis. So there are tons of, not tons, a handful of invariances, or another word for that is symmetry, right? The link between what, does, what remains the same about a physical system and basically its symmetry, okay? The fact that if I rotate the Earth, if I take a perfectly symmetric sphere, and I rotate it, it looks the same as the unrotated sphere. So the physical laws are codified by symmetry or invariance. So let's give a very, some modern examples of this. So what we're looking at here, I mean, um, here, and this is something like I would literally teach in my, actually a couple of weeks ago in my quantum field theory class. So what you see on the, to the left is um, a, a X, Y, and Z axis. It's used to sort of specify the position of some observer. It could be you sitting at the center of that coordinate system. It could be an airplane moving. And uh, the blue... Dr. Stefan, Dr. Yes. Stefan, um, I just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we only see the first slide. We're not seeing your, your other slides. Oh, this is not good. Okay. This, um, we only so, see Fear of Black Universe, the, the, the first slide of your oh, presentation. Oh, well, thank you for telling me that. Um, Absolutely, okay. of course. Okay, great, yeah. Uh, oh, well, try again. Try again to share your screen. Yeah, so um, what I'm going to have to do is to not make this thing. Um, yeah, I'm yeah, yeah. have to do that's, this that's, way and, yeah, for some reason. Okay. Um, okay. All right. Thank you very so much. So I wanted to show you the picture of Las Cuevas Bay. That was my first slide. I wanted to show you this, um, the idea of Einstein's principle theory when I talked about his um, method, basically, to use principles to understand physical law. And I basically, wanted, when I talked about positive devious, what I want to really highlight there is that what we're doing is not learning physics here. It's about doing, the act of doing and creating new things, creating new physics. Uh, and and it, positive deviance is, this, is basically embracing the outside in this outside thinking if you want to say away from the norms of a paradigm and and my point was that it's not an either or we need both we need both mastery 
and a striving to understand and master the known techniques and the norms, as well as embracing outsider thinking. Right? So that's the idea of positive deviance. And what I was talking about here are these three principles, invariance, superposition, and emergence. So what I want to talk about now is the invariance principle. And this very important slide kind of gives you the essence of Einstein's theory of special relativity. The fact that how Einstein discovered this was to actually use this idea of invariance. And I want to kind of talk about this very uh, magical form of invariance. The question is, what is, to talk about invariance, I got to talk about what changes, right? So what changes here is that we have somebody that's staying put and somebody that's moving along. So what's changing is the fact that you have two individuals and this um, diagram is supposed to represent um, a coordinate system moving away from another coordinate system. And the question here is, obviously, what changes is that if, you, if, you have, if you're watching something, right, and that thing is fixed, say, you, you know, there's, um, you're watching a, um, a train at rest, the train stops at rest, but somebody's moving along and they're also watching the train, they will perceive the train to be moving but you are perceiving a train to be at rest. So the question is, clearly there was a change there. And what Einstein realized was actually there is a secret operating in nature, that there were some things that actually didn't change, even when you have observers that are moving with respect to each other. And what he realized that did not change was the speed of light. Okay? So you can say, well, that's really weird. How is it that the speed of light can't change? Well, the trick was, and here was the underlying trick. You're moving through space, right? So you, you know, we are thinking that, hey, we are in a reality where we have three-dimensional space and then time is flowing along. So Einstein's hack was to realize that actually, if you were moving not in a three-dimensional space, but a four-dimensional space-time, that, that situation, right, is not changing actually for both observers, all right? And the picture to the right is supposed to, gives you basically what a little bit of, like what that geometry looks like. It looks like basically a, a cone and we call this thing a light cone. Now, I'm just giving you this talk, a little flavor. It's an invitation for you to go and read the entire chapter where I kind of go into, you know, whatever, 50, 40 pages of, of, of pedagogy. But the point of not pedagogy, but trying to clearly understand this idea. One way to think about this is if I'm at the surface of a sphere, right, and I move from one point of the sphere to the other, even though I may appear to move to a different position, there is something that doesn't change. And what, that, what doesn't change is the radius, the, the length that connects the origin of the sphere to the surface. When I rotate around, that length does not change. So what Einstein realized was that that length is like the speed of light in a four-dimensional space-time. So basically, at the end of the day, the thing that didn't change is the nature of this four-dimensional space-time reality that we're all living in, and we are just nothing more than projections of that, thinking that we live in three dimensions. So again, he was able to eke out um, this, um, this reality that we can't directly perceive about four dimensions by undergoing these thought experiments, asking questions about when things move, what does not change in this? 
and he realized the speed of light doesn't change. That was that, you know, that came about from another thought experiment that he had. But again, this is an example. I'm going to give you another thought experiment. And this one was Einstein's happiest thought. Again, this was underlying his theory of general relativity. And it uses some of the most beautiful mathematics. And actually, Provost Petter, Petters is one of the world's experts on this type of um, mathematics called differential geometry, where he applied it to, um, um, to, to basically advances in gra gravitational lensing, um, something I'll talk about later on. So basically, what Einstein realized was another symmetry. Here's the symmetry. The symmetry is a, the symmetry or the invariance, the thing that doesn't stay the same is the following. Let's actually, let's actually look at this thought experiment. Somebody is in a, you know, some kind of, you know, con contained in, in, in a wall, not, a, not in a room, a very small room. They cannot see what's outside. They can't hear anything. They have no information about what's going on outside. But what they could do is know something about gravity. So they can drop something and see it fall. So one morning they wake up and they, in, this, in this room and they drop things and they're like, oh, yeah, I'm, on, I'm clearly on a planet and I'm definitely fixed in some room like you are right now, right? We are all now in a situation where we're in some type of room and we're not moving. We are fixed to the earth. So this person concludes that. There's another person, though, who is in outer space where there's no gravity and they're being accelerated upward and they also drop a ball and they experience the same thing. What Einstein realized that these two situations are equivalent. They're the same. They cannot, they cannot, you get the same physical outcome in a situation where you're not moving at all, right, in the presence of an Earth's gravitational field and where you're moving in outer space where there's no gravity. And so he basically claimed that there is an invariance. There's a symmetry between moving or accelerating and not accelerating. And that was a key to him then realizing that there's a principle here at work. And this principle has to do with, you have to basically give up any description of a fundamental coordinate system, that even the notion of labeling a coordinate system is actually um, a fiction. And he was able to go beyond that and devise his theory of curved space-time, that the underlying reality, the thing that's hidden from us is actually that space can warp. Okay, also time could warp as well, but that's another question. So that, these are two great examples of where Albert Einstein was able to use um, invariance as a diagnostic to discover new laws. And of course, the mathematics came along with that to help us refine and make more precise statements. And so that's, so I now want to move on to another principle. Oh, by the way, can I ask um, how much more time I have available to me? Um, you have another maybe 20 minutes. All right. So I have to move quickly now. Yeah. The second principle I want to talk about is a super, the superposition principle. This is the principle underlying quantum mechanics. And the way I want to talk about that is to talk about music. You see, every musical note, you can think of every musical note as the realization of a vibrating wave. So you see to the top here, when I look at basically um, an airwave in, inside of a flute or a wind instrument, that wave is basically undulating. And the ones um, that, that, uh, that are below are undulating or vibrating at a much faster rate. 
And the different rates at which those waves are vibrating gives me the different notes and the different tones. Now, there's a particular mathematical relation, which are the, the sort of, you know, and at least in, West, in Western um, scales, um, you know, um, the, the um, notes of, the, of what we call the, um, of our major scale are all related to each other by integer relations, meaning that the, as you see there, the wave is divided into integers, right? One half, one third, one fourth, one fifth of the original waves. So my way into this is to think about that waves, they're very special waves, and that the waves basically come in these different varieties. But I can do something else. I can superpose these waves. So for example, if I play three, three notes at the same time, that's like adding these three waves together to create what we call a chord. And in mathematics and physics, we, this idea is called superposition, and it's behind a very powerful idea in engineering and physics that has a fancy name called a Fourier transform, which is that if I add these three simple waves, these three notes, I get a more complicated looking resultant note, right? And that's the essence of superposition. Quantum mechanics uses, at the heart of quantum mechanics, this is the underlying principle that makes a quantum world dramatically and, and majestically different than the world of the macroscopic. So what is weird about this? Well, I told you that um, every note is like one of these waves and they can be added up together. But imagine if I told you that every wave in the quantum world actually corresponds to the position of a quantum particle. So imagine I tell you that I'm if I consider one and only one quantum particle, that basically I can superpose or add many different positions of that one particle at the same time. Now you're gonna say that is totally voodoo, <laughs> right? Because when you look at things in the real world, right, things have a, a unique identity in terms of its position in terms of its position in space. In the quantum world, I'm, what I'm saying is that at the heart of the quantum world is this superposition principle, which tells me that actually, I have no choice actually, but to actually consider multiple positions or velocities or different qualities of the same quantum object. And that should be weird. And up, you know, I, no quantum mechanical expert I know personally is yet comfortable with this idea but it is at the heart of actually all of the properties that we use in quantum mechanics. Um, we are now thinking, of course, we're building quantum computers. The, this, this property of superposition is actually at the heart of the devices behind a quantum computer. So it's a very real thing. This is not, while it, it seems to be weird, it is actually not um, sci-fi. But um, I, I, you know, obviously people have made sci-fi movies based on this idea. So again, our way into this is to really, is to look at basically how an instrument works. One of the triumphs of, the, of understanding atoms in the quantum world was that the, um, the, the, the orbits of, of, of atoms in the early days of classical physics was unstable. Um, that, that physics allowed that basically the electron to fall into the, pro, the, the nucleus. And it was, the French prince violinist, um, Louis de Broglie, who basically took the idea of a vibrating um, violin or a string instrument 
to realize that the notes on a vibrating string support these waves that I was talking about. And he realized that you can wrap these waves around, as you see there, and, and if you identify the orbit of the electron as actually a wave, then that would solve the problem. And not only did it solve the problem and stabilize the orbits, stabilize the orbits because there's the lowest note will just correspond to you know, the lowest um, frequency. And if you identify the orbit of the electron as the lowest frequency, well, it cannot never fall in because it's using this wave-like property. So anyway, to make a long story short, Louis de Broglie was able to then apply this idea. And then later on, it was Schrodinger and, and, and his contemporaries that developed the full mathematical theory of quantum mechanics. And now what you're looking at here is basically the vibrational patterns of the electron's orbit in hydrogen. These are you know, mathematical um, and, of course, experimental realizations that basically, when, we, when you think of, of molecules and the bonds, they are not particle phenomenon but they are resonant vibrational patterns, sort of like vibrating um, sand on this, this, this vibrating plate. Notice that if, um, if I tune the frequency, this random pattern of sand on, the, on, on, on this um, surface will start forming one of these vibrational patterns. So this, this type of physics is what's going on in the, deep down in the quantum world. And again, the, the superposition principle leads to some very weird consequences. Like I can be in a superposition of a dead cat and an alive cat if there's a quantum event that triggers its, you know, the poison coming and killing the cat or not. And there's this idea now, if I watch something versus not watching it, do I disturb the superposition? And so there are lots of philosophical questions there. And of course, um, it's, I hope, covered nicely in my book. Um, so I'm going to skip this in the interest of time. Here is something that um, I think is quite remarkable. These are what we call Feynman diagrams. And what you're looking at here are superpositions. Each diagram corresponds to some elementary subatomic particle event. And this, this is basically these diagrams, and this is another interesting theorem I talk, which is different perspective of, um, and of seeing the same type of physics. So in this case, Richard Feynman was able to turn his mathematical equations into an equal representation of art. So, I, so, one of the, so instead of doing these really complicated calculations that would slow him down or um, muddy up um, a clear idea of what's going on in the physics, Feynman devised these diagrams these beautiful diagrams that encode all of the mathematics. And so what we're looking at here are superpositions of elementary processes of the same entities. And what you find is that if you add these up and you then calculate a number, that number will maybe correspond to a tiny little magnetic, um, you know, magnetic field of um, a particle called a muon. It's a heavier cousin of the electron. It turns out you'll get 11 decimal points of accuracy, meaning you'll get a zero with 11 decimal points um, that you can go compare to experiments. So what I'm saying here is that the superposition principle, while it's weird, it actually seems to be functioning in the subatomic world. Um, I'm going to skip this here because, um, you know, as a musician, I've also been a little bit deviant and worked with jazz musicians to apply some of these quantum ideas into jazz improvisation. and in my first book, um, my first book called 
um, the jazz of physics, I kind of talk about this quantum improvisation. Uh, one day when I come out to Abu Dhabi, I will, um, I'm more than happy to um, play some of that. <laughs> so, um, and here's a picture of a Feynman path integral, not with atoms, but with notes. So I'll let you stew over that a little bit um, until I see you in person. Um, now, the last principle I want to talk about is the principle of emergence. Now, principle of emergence is, in a sense, how do you think about it? Think about it in, in opposition to what we call reductionism. A big part of 20th century physics was basically going deeper and deeper into smaller and smaller distance scales and discovering more and more, you know, the idea of atomism, more and more fundamental elementary particles. And what, what, what we discovered was the deeper and deeper we got to look shorter and shorter distance scales to find these more elementary particles, that these particles and their interactions, the way the, the rules that govern their interactions enjoyed more and more symmetries. So we thought, hey, just let's just keep going there. And, you know, something like super string theory is a, you probably heard about this idea, super, super string theory is an idea that's very beautiful. And I've, you know, I've worked on string theory. I still think it's a beautiful idea and worth pursuing. I, I'm certainly doing that, you know, as well. But that idea basically lends itself to the idea of reductionism. Emergence, you can think of it as the opposite. So what we're looking at here are, imagine that I, I have my elementary particles and I've reduced reality down to saying, you know, the laws of nature is all about that. That's it. And then I can, <clears throat> I can build up everything. I can understand atoms and life and viruses and all that stuff. Emergence says, not quite. It, what emergence says is that while you do need these elementary particles and their interactions, the interactions themselves and the particles and the properties that those, that say smaller subsystem has, cannot fully explain certain properties that, that emerge, for lack of a better word. And I want to give you some example of, so the principle of emergence, I just want to state it here, is that systems with interaction elementary parts, for example, atoms, um, and, you know, atoms in, in, um, corresponding to gas, and at some point, if I cool it enough, it becomes a liquid, but it's made up of the same atoms and the same interactions. Now they have different properties that cannot be explained or reduced to the basic interactions. So systems with interacting elementary parts can exhibit novel properties that are not possessed by those individual constituents. So we have this little picture here that tries to get to this, which is that you have these individual interactions, but then you have an emergent structure. And um, here's one example <clears throat> of ants that individually don't know anything about a bridge, but you know, they, they create an emergent phenomenon that has a new functionality. And that functionality is basically to, to build a bridge so that the other ants could cross over. The individual ants cannot do that, nor can three ants do it. You need this emergence. You need all a collective behavior of the ants to give this new emergent property. What is the emergent property? The functionality of a bridge. Um, so some other examples of emergence is people with our own ind individual psychology and languages, but we come together to create an emergent property called culture. We have atoms. Atoms are not living, so most of us think, but when atoms come together, they make a cell. They make living 
um, things, and that's the emergent property that's not contained in the individual atoms. Neurons, some people believe that consciousness is an emergent property, you know, or complicate, complex human consciousness is an emergent property of how neurons are wired together. Um, and the, so there the, are lots of examples, but my point here is to make emergence fundamental, make it a fundamental principle of nature. Not, an emer not something that is only reliant on the constituents. It is basically encoded in our, in, in our universe. That's my point. So some of the things I play with in my, in, my, in my book is maybe some wild ideas. So the rest of my talk is to kind of talk about some of these wild ideas. So one wild idea is, well, how could, you know, maybe space and time itself can be emergent. What does that mean? Because that's a weird one. What does it mean, you know, we can, it's safe to say that in many of our experiences and perception and imagination of space and time is that it's something that is, um, something that is, you know, a priori, empty and in front of us. It's a stage that we can move in. Well, obviously, Albert Einstein um, toppled that idea and showed that space and time is a dynamic, malleable entity. And why it still, you know, presides to be invisible, that's another, for another discussion, is because space and time itself is a field, right? Like the same way you can have a magnetic field operating between two magnets, you can't see the magnetic field, but you can feel the forces. So you know there's something, though invisible, happening that's, that's basically making these magnets speak to each other um, between the empty space. So, but what about the idea of no space then? And so can we think of some, lack of a better word, atoms of space-time where you have a, a pre-geometry, a pre-space-time? What does that look like? Well, how do you conceptualize that? So in the book, I talk about that, that there could be atoms of space-time, the notion that space-time is really an operational thing, something that it only exists in relation to um, the, a thing that is in the space-time. And there's a notion of fuzziness in, you know, of, you know, lo one's location could actually be fuzzy with respect to, you know, um, one's, the energy one puts into observing the space-time. So there's this interesting interplay that would can make even space, um, the notion of having pre-space before having this smooth, continuous property of space-time. And that idea is, is not done. It's still being pursued by, by others. There are different variants of it. And in the book, I kind of give my own variant of it and, and talk about actually that space contains in it atoms of consciousness. And that's what's weird about this, okay? So what do we mean by, by atoms of consciousness? And what I do in, in this is actually I, I draw from African philosophy, actually, from the Bantu Congo philosophy of something called um, Ogbunu. So um, well, actually, I'm not remembering the word precisely, but it's in my book. So that's a nice little teaser. It's at the end, the last chapter, last two chapters of the book. Um, and I want, this is now a little surprise treat for, um, for um, Arlie. So she spent a lot of time thinking about dark matter and what is dark matter. So I'm going to finish my talk off now by talking about this other wild idea. Remember, I told you that the quantum principle, if it's fundamental, 
then therefore it should not only, you see, we only think that the quantum mechanics is operating at subatomic scales. But if we, what do I mean to make a principle fundamental? It means that it should operate everywhere, including in, in, uh, on, you know, in, in regimes or in situations where we should not expect it to operate. So here's a crazy or wild or black idea. Um, so what we're looking at is um, a rotating galaxy. <clears throat> so a galaxy comprises of a, of a disk-like um, system of stars that are rotating around a common center like a, you know, like a Frisbee that's rotating. Now, it has our Milky Way galaxy is what we call a spiral galaxy and comprises of on the order of, you know, 500 billion stars like our own sun. And it's all going around at some velocity. So Newton's laws tell us that you can weigh what's in um, a rotating system by how fast it's going. That's called, this is called Kepler's law. So what we're seeing here is what we expect of this physics of Newton and what Einstein and Newton taught us, which is that when I go further out, the galaxy should be rotating slower at that position, given the amount of mass that we observe. And what we see instead is this white curve that it's not slowing down. And so what that means is that we need some form of matter to compensate for the rotation that we actually see. And in fact, how much of it is needed? Well, 85% of it is invisible and missing. We call that invisible matter, dark matter, okay? So it's the invisible amount of matter that's needed to make our galaxies rotate. Now you can say, well, why do I care about that? Well, Remember, our sun, is out the, our, our sun is kind of at the outer edge of our galaxy. And if dark matter did not exist, our sun would be in an unstable orbit. <laughs> so we'd be, in, we'd be in trouble. We'd go flinging off. Um, we'd be in an unstable orbit. So because of dark matter, we're able to sustain ourselves going around our galaxy in a stable orbit. So we are, this is cutting-edge research. We don't know what the dark matter, we know it exists. We just don't know its character, what it's made up of, why it's happening, why does the universe need it? You know, how could something invisible weigh so much? I mean, so there's all these questions. And <clears throat> I want to play this little video showing um, this idea of a quantum fluid. This is something that happens, an emergent property, but it's a quantum emergent property. So what we're doing is combining the quantum principle with an emergent property, which is that I have a gas of hydrogen, hydrogen gas, and what happens is a collective emergent property where it becomes what we call a superfluid. So I'm, I'm going to play this, and I believe that this is um, courtesy of the BBC, um, so I want to give, give credit for that. There were more surprises ahead. In the 1930s, another strange phenomenon was observed at even lower temperatures. This rapidly evaporating liquid helium cools until at two degrees above absolute zero, a dramatic transformation takes place. Suddenly, you see that the bubbling stops and that the surface of the liquid helium is completely still. The temperature is actually being lowered even further now, but nothing particular is happening. Well, this, this is really one of the great phenomenon in, in 20th century physics. The liquid helium had turned into a superfluid, which displays some really odd properties. Here I have a beaker with an unglazed 
So the base, oh, let's see what, let me see. Ceramic bottom of ultra-fine porosity. Ordinarily, this container with tiny pores can hold liquid helium. But the moment the helium turns superfluid, it leaks through. We call this kind of flow a superflow. All right, so that should be weird. The reason why is that the superfluid is the, what's super here is a, it's a quantum fluid. And ordinary fluids, if you contain it in a glass, like my coffee here, it's going to stay there. Well, what a superfluid does, it creeps over. It has um, negative pressure. It's able to escape and creep over. And that's because it's, it, it's actually what it's doing is undergoing a phenomenon called quantum tunneling. So it uses these weird quantum properties. And the new idea is that the dark matter actually is an emergent quantum property that is not acting on only microscopic scale, but on galactic scale. And the idea is that our galaxy is a super, what, we, what I call in, in, my, in the book, a quantum galaxy. The galaxy is a superfluid. Um, and, you know, we can learn about this. So one of the things that um, I always like to, you know, I, I, I see that Ollie is smiling. He's seeing a picture of a gravitational lens, which is this idea that we can know about dark matter, even though it's invisible, because it's so, because if it's heavy and contained in the galaxy, according to Einstein's theory, it could warp or lens the space around it. And so if I look at an object behind it, the same way I look at an image behind um, a magnifying glass, a lens, it will distort it and make it look different than what it actually is. And what we're looking at here is a very, a real picture from the Hubble Space Telescope, but we see a ring. That ring is a lensed image of a warping of space-time due to the effect of dark matter in a galaxy. And that what you're really seeing is a sequence um, of the same galaxy um, that's lens around, like a kaleidoscope. It's a real, a real picture, a real effect. And we can use gravitational lensing to now look for properties of a superfluid fluid galaxy. And what is one of those properties? You're going to have an emergent phenomenon. You see in these worlds, those are things like um, you know, a sandstorm or a hurricane. We call these things vortices and superfluid. Quantum superfluids actually predict this phenomenon. So we are now, um, you know, I want to kind of end by saying that sometimes venturing out into these uncharted territories that you're told you're not supposed to do, um, by engaging in this positive deviance and by using the principal ideas that I was talking about, sometimes you could construct new theories. And I want to kind of and by saying that this is one of those new theories that I and my colleagues were able to get at by engaging in the principle of blackness. So thank you for your time. And it's been a real pleasure. And I look forward to seeing you all in person um, very soon in the near future. And again, thanks a lot. Um, thank you very much. Um... Thank you very much, uh, uh, Dr. Stefan. Uh, Dr. Arley, would you wish to uh, open up the Q&A session? The questions are under the Q&A, Q so if you want, you can pick up a couple of questions and, and uh, direct. Otherwise, I can do it. I'd be happy to do okay, it. Okay, yes. Well, we can, we can surely share, Nadia. Well, thank you for such an excellent presentation. Um, I'm extremely inspired. 
And I will say uh, your talk itself created an emergent phenomenon because my mind was just going. So thank, thank you for that resonance. So we have some uh, questions in the chat and um, uh, Professor Nadia Sheikh, also Vice Provost, is, she and I are going to share the questions. So this one deals with, um, I'll begin with the first one, uh, Nadia. It's, it's, I'd say relates to Korea matters. It says, how is it possible to be a good physicist in an H-index dominated era? <laughs> so I guess the academic analytics may, may be, does that really interfere with this creativity you're talking about, right? Yes, 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 yes. It's a very Going outside the box. Yes. Um, well, you know, I, I, um, so full disclosure, um, my whole thing is that, well, you know, there, there is a thing as H index, but there's also what a, the H index is doing is it's supposed to be some form of a metric or some type of measure of impact. But certainly I know of great physicists with a relatively low H index but their impact is tremendous. So again, I would think more in terms of impact as a fundamental principle and the H index as some, you know, some limited, some measure, but albeit limited. And I think more importantly is the question of impact. And that's why we, I'm happy that you have a provost like Ali Pettis, who is going to change the rules, um, you know, and grant <laughs> tenure um, based more on impact. I can, th I can turn the question more on, uh, I think that's more of a question for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I think that indeed you hit on, on a very important point in that creativity comes in so many different forms. And there are times when assessing that, uh, we should not become too, too much uh, dogmatic about certain kinds of uh, academic analytics. Uh, some of the most creative people had very poor grades, mm -hmm. right? They didn't perform well on standardized tests. They may not publish a lot. So these are the important things you're pointing out. And Nadia, did you want to take the next one? I think you're on mute. Yeah. Yes, so someone is saying here, I'm probably way off here, but is a black hole's enormous gravity which causes the bending of time, a macro example of quantum mechanics? That's a great, that's a fantastic question. Um, and I think the way to really get at that is, is that if we had a quantum theory of, so we know, we know from Feynman's way of thinking about quantum mechanics that the classical world emerges from that quantum thing. And so what, what we'd love to get is a quantum theory of gravity that may describe a black hole and see whether or not that, that's a very good question. It's, a very, it's actually a good research question. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but, that, uh, but it's, the question is pointing basically to a need for whether or not we do need a theory of quantum gravity or not. Is it sufficient for the black hole to just be described by its event horizon, classically? Right. Um, maybe, I, I'm sure, I mean, I actually, I would like to open this up to something that's kind of looking like a conversation between me and Provost Paddock, because I actually like to hear his thoughts about that too. I know you've thought a lot about black holes. <laughs> so. Yes. Uh, so, well, you know, we have a, a lot of fascinating questions uh, in this regard. 
And mm-hmm. so I'm going to pick a different one. Mm-hmm. It says, thank you so much for the talk. I'm amazed by your thoughts about the interaction between physics and music. Could you mm-hmm. talk more about your exploration of music? Yes. Yeah, that's a great, thank you. I mean, one of the things just like, um, you know, I like to say that a really good physicist is a, is a very dumb person. I actually really mean that. You know, like we... You know, I, I think that you and I, we, will, we, we, see the, we see this the same way, actually. We're always striving to, to find a, the simplest or dumbest or most basic um, explanation for something that may appear to be very complicated and bewildering. So we're always trying to strip it down to the simplest thing. So the way I approach my music and my jazz improvisation is that, you know, there are all these notes and chords and scales. I'm, I'm trying to basically strip it down and see, is there something underlying that, that if I understand that, then it enables me to, to just really get a better hold of the, of the improvisations I'm, I'm playing. So yeah, sometimes I do analyze um, my music through the lens of symmetry or what are the basic, what, you know, there are thousands of chords, but are there maybe two or three? But if I know those two or three, I can, the, the others just can emerge. So, so, yes, that's exactly some of the things I engage in. And in fact, engaging with some um, colleagues at NYU Abu Dhabi and in and, and New York City, Robert Rowe and his colleagues um, um, actually in some of this. So, you know, um, NYU Abu Dhabi is actually unique in the sense, had a conference, I think, not too long ago that talked about the geometry of musical rhythm. Um, so looking forward to continuing on that, that exploration, actually. Mm-hmm. Another question on black holes is about um, how, bla- how are black holes related to dark matter? That's a very good question. Uh, we expect some sort, of, some sort of relation. It's something that I know I've been thinking about. I know other people have been thinking about. Um, you know, I, I believe some years ago, even Provost Petters Petter, looked at higher dimensional black holes. And, um, you know, there's some ideas that connect in a high dimensional framework, the relationship between black holes and dark matter that could be looked at again, actually. So thanks for that question. So the answer is we expect some correlation between them or some causation or interconnection between the two things. They're operating on very different length scales. I mean, you're talking about something on the order of 10,000, you know, kilopart, you know, 10,000 parsecs versus something that's contain, um, you know, a few solar, you know, the size of a solar system. So, but yeah, yeah, so we expect some connection. We don't know the answer. Okay. So the next question is, is space-time like a field, two-dimensional, or is it covering everything inside it, such as us, like chocolate chips in a muffin? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you know, that's right. So space-time is a weird type of field because it's a field that defi- defines a space. It, 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 it occupies itself. <laughs> so, <laughs> right? so in other words, one way to think about this is that if I hold a, a, a magnet and it has a magnetic field, that magnetic field is occupying space-time. But the space-time provides the space itself for it to occupy itself. You know? So it's a weird, even more weird, bizarre concept. Um, it defines its own background. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Professor Alexander, can gravity be explained as an emergent property? 
So there are physicists right now as we speak that are trying to do this. I believe that all those models are at this stage of the game. Um, toy models, what we call toy models, which are, again, very stripped down, unrealistic things where we can play with the equations to get some insight. Um, we're not there yet. But um, do I think do I think that, you know, that gravity, um, space-time is an emergent phenomenon? I think it is, but it's the weirdest, it's the weirdest one. If it's going to be an emergent phenomenon, it cannot be like the other ones. It has to be completely bizarre. And that's why I think that it has to involve consciousness. Now, let me use the word proto-consciousness. That's not, do not project our human kind of consciousness on this, all right? Um, and so I kind of speculate about that at the end of the book, that there's a, an emergence due to the activity of a proto-consciousness. Um, and I'll leave that for the, for the end of the book. That, that is a really nice way to say God and buy the book. <laughs> this is fantastic. <laughs> so this one, Stefan, picks up on, of course, the, di the important diversity issues uh, that you raise. Mm -hmm. Have you had any collaborations with researchers at African universities? If so, I'd be curious to hear the topic's findings. Yeah, so, you know, I'm very, uh, I, you know, I'm, so I consider, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of like, you know, what do you call it? What do you, there's, a, there's a word for this, a person that, I'm a diasporatic thinker, I mean, that I look at the diaspora, including Africa, as one whole continuum. And so I don't really see much of a difference between, you know, collaborating with, though I have, I've written papers with Manasin Bonye, who is a Rwandan cosmologist and a good friend. And we, in fact, some of the origins of this quantum, quantum galaxy idea came out of that early collaboration. And then, but, you know, I'm very proud to say that it wasn't, wasn't anything that I was deliberately doing, but I've happened to you know, have written like, you know, six or seven papers with, with black physicists, you know, I'm very proud of that. Um, Ollie and I, you know, we were working on Sunday and he became a provost, <laughs> but maybe, maybe he could sneak, sneak a thing or two in, in the future uh, when he's less busy. But my point is that does something different come out? Is that if that's what the question is pointing to? And I think that, um, I think, if that, you know, every collaboration does have a difference in who, and that's the point. The point is that when you, when you, in, when you collaborate with people from, with different cultural lenses, even though you're talking the same mathematical language, it's going to paint, right? It's going to color, for lack of a better word, um, what, what comes up. It's going to color the engagement. It's going to color the style. You talk about style. I mean, when I was in, in England, you know, the English physicists, you know, the way they were talking, the way that the black world were kind of different than the Russian physicists, were kind of different than the French physicists. And I think the same happens, you know, when um, other cultures are engaged in um, as well. It's not to say that that is the main difference, but I'm saying that it, um, it's, an, it's a beautiful thing and we should do more of it. Uh, speed of light is constant, but time can warp. Please give your view. Um, speed of light is constant, but time can warp. <laughs> well, that's okay. Time is not time. Okay. Time is speed is a composite of time and space.
to talk about speed, you need to talk about how far an object, you know, is displaced in a given unit of time, right? Whereas time itself, right, is not a it's not a composite. It's a literally a dimension, right? It's one of the legs in the four-dimensional space-time continuum. And it's interrelated with the spatial dimensions in the sense that there's a symmetry that can swap space and time that says, you know what, the one thing that happens when I swap space and time is that the speed of light still remains the same. Um, uh, Provost Petters, this is the last question for okay. our speaker so, tonight. Well, I think uh, the, the ideal way to end tonight is a comment from one of the viewers. Thank you for enlightening us tonight. This was an emergent moment. <laughs> Thank you as well. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Alexander, for this uh, incredible talk. Uh, we hope to host you in person sometime soon in Abu Dhabi. Uh, thank you, Provost Petters, for your recommendation and for joining us tonight and for helping us uh, communicate with, uh, with, the, with the Professor Alexander. Um, uh, stay tuned for, the, for those who are attending the, the, the talk. Please stay tuned for our programming and hope to see you on campus sooner than later. Thank you very much. And thanks again for a fantastic talk, Stefan. You know, take care. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.